bring you our greetings from the staff at Converge Great Lakes. We're a, a very small staff. There's four of us down in Madison, and we represent uh, a larger movement of what God is doing here in our region. Uh, Bethany has been a wonderful partner with Converge Great Lakes over a long period of time, and so many of you are very familiar uh, with our ministry. Uh, we really exist to support you in effective ministry here in your community. And I get excited about that, coming alongside churches and pastors and their leaders to support the important work uh, that they are doing. Well, you know, we have churches uh, scattered from the shore of Lake Superior to the Illinois border, from the Minnesota border over to Lake Michigan and across the Upper Peninsula, 115 churches. And so, you know, when we kind of get down in the weeds of everyday living, it's good to kind of look up and see that God is a big God and doing bigger things than we can uh, really imagine. And uh, through Converge Great Lakes, we get to be a part of some of those bigger things that, and remind you that you are a part of that as well. So thank you for your partnership, your faithfulness over that long period of time. I'm the new guy on the block uh, starting on September 1st. Uh, my role is to really oversee the strength and health of our churches. You know, Converge has a wonderful track record of planting new churches in new communities, but in order for those churches to thrive, we need a strong existing church. And so we want to do everything we can do to partner with you in your strength and health. I would invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to be reading from chapter 2. I've entitled my message, and it's very fitting for this season of Advent, a vision for ministry. Aren't we thankful this morning that God had a vision for a world that was lost in sin, had experienced great darkness, and into that world he unfolded his plan of sending his one and only Son. He had a vision for people in need of a Savior, and we need to be people with a vision as well for the world in which we live. Please follow along as I read from Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, I examined the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And then I said to them, Do you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, 
as does its gates, which have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Will you join your heart with mine as we pray this morning? Father, what a privilege it is to open your holy word. And in the midst of this season of Advent, to capture a renewed vision of what you have in store for your people, even here in this place at this time. Lord, I thank you for each one gathered here, for the community of fellowship called Bethany. Oh, how we pray that you will bless this wonderful work. Give us eyes to see today. Give us ears to hear the truth of your word. Might your spirit work in our lives in, along with the word of God to join together to convict, to persuade, to encourage, to strengthen, to teach. Whatever it is we need, O Lord, we now surrender to you to provide. And we give you all praise and glory in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. When it comes to vision, I take this very personally. I'm one who believes that vision is a life or death topic for the church and for every believer. Of course, we know in Proverbs it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. It is, in fact, life or death. But I take this very personally because there was a time in my life and likely a time in your life where I had no vision. Let me take you on just a quick journey of my story of faith in Christ. I came to know Jesus at the age of 10. I grew up and was raised in a local converged church up in Marquette, Michigan. And out at Northland Mission Bible Camp on a Friday morning, I surrendered my heart to Christ and accepted Jesus to be my Savior. I then went on to be active in my youth group and every Sunday and Wednesday night Bible study, and when the church doors were open, I was involved in church. I graduated from high school in 1970. And some of you who are of my vintage, uh, 1970 was an important year in U.S. history. It was really the climax of the Vietnam War. They were drafting every 18-year-old boy they could get their hands on. I had Christ in my life, but I had no vision. I took a four-year deferment from the draft and went off to Northern Michigan University. I was like the sheep mentioned in Scripture 
that are going astray. I was just wandering through life with Jesus in my heart, but no real following after him, no understanding that he had a plan for my life. First semester at Northern Michigan University, one required course was Speech 101. Well, I went to class on the first day, and the professor said that each of you students are going to have to give a five-minute speech sometime during the semester. I want you to tell the class about your life. Well, for most of the students, this was probably one of those classes they loved to have, an easy three credits. For me, I dreaded it. When the sign-up sheet came around that first day, I signed up at the very last opportunity, mid-November. Mid-November arrived, one o'clock in the afternoon was to be my speech. I'm driving around Marquette in my car. I'm lost in this world. A young boy who grew up in a conflicted family, who went to church every Sunday and heard the good news of Jesus Christ, had Christ in my life but had no sense of his plan for me. I was just wandering through life. I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but at that noon hour, I knew one thing for certain. I wasn't going to give a speech. If you had known me in those days, you would have known me as probably one of the most timid young men you had ever met. And I was afraid. I was afraid of public speaking. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of my future. I was afraid of a lot of things. And my car ended up on Front Street in front of the recruiting office and I believe that it was God's doing. And I walked in, took the first door on the right, a little sign on the door saying, out to lunch, be back soon. I sat down and started breezing through recruiting posters, and this was the U.S. Air Force office. Had no desire to be a pilot or aviation mechanic. I had no idea what I was doing. There was one recruiter in the building during the lunch hour. It was the Navy recruiter across the hall eating his lunch at his desk. And I'll always wonder what, what he did, whether it was ethical or unethical, but he came over to the Air Force office, he grabbed this young boy, and he took me to his office. <laughs> and when I left his office, I had enlisted for six years in the U.S. Navy. As far as I knew, I was going to Vietnam. I didn't care. I wasn't going to give a five-minute speech. Fast forward. It's 1974. I'm married. I'm living in southern Spain, not Vietnam. I attended a small group Bible study at the chapel that evening, and I don't know what the chaplain was talking about or what scripture he was referring to. All I know is when I got back to our little apartment, I looked at my wife, and I said, God is calling me to be a pastor. Well, she knew me, and I knew me, and she said to me, Steve, you're forgetting something. No, I'm not forgetting anything. We both know that I cannot do what God is calling me to do but he's calling me nevertheless. And so we sat on that secret for two years. We could not tell even our parents, for no one would believe it, for everyone knew what Steve was like. Fast forward, I'm in Bible college, my second year. Haven't yet stood in front of a group of people to speak, hadn't taken a preaching class. It's a Saturday night, I get a telephone call. It's from my pastor of a small Baptist church we were attending. He was on his way out for vacation, and the guy he had lined up to speak was sick. Steve, would you preach tomorrow morning? 
I think God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I didn't appreciate the humor at the moment. I said yes, and then I went into full panic mode. And for that entire evening, throughout the deep hours of that night, I studied and I prayed. I mostly prayed. I needed God. I needed God desperately for something tomorrow morning was going to happen. The call of God was going to collide with my fear, my limitations, my weaknesses. But you see, that Sunday night when I had sensed the call of God in that small group Bible study, God started to plant the seed of a vision in my heart, a vision of a pastor a vision of a man preaching the word of God, a vision of a man who was leading others to the throne of grace. And now it was going to collide on that Sunday morning. I came to church, a group of about 50 people. I had been going there a year and a half. I knew them pretty well. It was an old traditional church with stained glass and kind of the big wooden pulpit. And there I stood behind the pulpit. I put my notes, all kinds of notes, <laughs> And I put my Bible down. And I kid you not, if I could have melted into my shoes and disappeared, I would have. But God was not letting go of me. God had put a vision in my heart. For the first time in my life, I was following a vision instead of running from my fears. I set my Bible on the pulpit and I made eye contact with the 50 people and I tell you the truth this morning. It is the greatest miracle in my life apart from my salvation. God reached into the heart of this shy, timid young boy and he ripped the fear right away. You see, vision to me is very personal. I stand here today recognizing I cannot stand here today. I share with you from my heart and from the word recognizing I have no ability to do so. I stand here in the power, in the love, and in the grace of the God who sent his only son that Christmas so long ago. Do you live your life by vision? Or are you hiding in your fears? Are you moving forward in the plan of God? Or are you running away from all the things that cause you to tremble? I know what it's like to tremble. And I know what it's like to experience God's power and grace. Will you join me as I look at the text this morning? I want you to be asking the question for you. Make it personal. Make vision personal. What good is it if it's Pastor Steve's vision? What good is it if it's somebody else's? But if it's yours from his word... It will give your life purpose and meaning and direction for the days to come. Can you envision what God wants to do here at Bethany? Five years from now, 20 years from now, can you picture it in your mind? Can you feel it in your gut? Will it be so strong that it will cause you to stand behind the wooden pulpit and face your greatest of fears? Do you have a vision for what God wants to do in this region, the greater Wausau community, for the sake of Jesus Christ? I want to share five things about vision from the text this morning. 
They come right from the scripture. Number one, vision sees the desired future. Yes, it does. <laughs> there is a desired future. I didn't know that as a young man. I had Jesus in my life, but I didn't realize there was a plan for me. And now I see it clearly. And even the parking of my car on Front Street in front of the recruiting office was part of God's plan. It did not happen by chance. Are you following that vision? That desired future for your life, for your church, for your community? Notice if you go back to the earlier part of chapter 2 and look at verse 5. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in a land not his own. He had been in exile away from his home, Jerusalem, and he was now in a servant role with the king. But he got word that something was wrong back in the homeland. Jerusalem and the walls were in ruins. And so Nehemiah, after he pulled himself off the floor with a broken heart and tears in his eyes, decided to pray to God for an answer, and then he decided to be the answer to his own prayer, and he went to the king and he said, King, let me be the one to go and rebuild the walls. And here's what it says in verse 5. Let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried. Why? So that I can rebuild it. You see, Nehemiah had a picture in his mind of the walls restored. Do you have a picture of Bethany bursting at the seams? You're going to have to figure it out, you know. Multiple services, building projects, who knows what's in store. Multiplying your lives as you have already done into others as they start churches in your region. Can you taste it? Can you feel it? Can you see it? Because if you don't first see the desired future, you'll never move in that direction. Back in late August, we moved down to Madison, and I had never had a desire to build a house. Quite honestly, I still don't, but we did. Um, the east side of Madison is going through kind of a boom, and there's tons of young families. And I am now the oldest person in my entire subdivision, I think. I mean, it's just a real young community, and we couldn't find any little house. I mean, we're at the stage where, you know, we have just the two of us, and we wanted everything on one level, and it wasn't happening, and so we made a decision to build. Now, the interesting thing about building is you better start with a picture in your mind of the finished product. Because if you start without that picture, you're going to have a bunch of lumber and nails and bricks in very unusual proximity to each other. In order for it to come together to make a beautiful home, you have to begin with a picture. Can you picture Bethany five years from now as God builds his kingdom? 
Can you picture your walk with the Lord five years from now? Up until that day, I was in that small group Bible study. I could never picture how God could ever use me. I, I, I mean, I, I had the Moses syndrome. Uh, I, I'm not qualified. There's nothing about me that suggests you pick the right guy. But then he started to paint the picture in my mind. Do you have it in your mind? Vision is a picture of the desired future. Number two, vision always originates with God. So when I talk about vision in churches, I'm not talking about man's idea. I'm not talking about what, what somebody said uh, they saw. But I'm talking about that which is confirmed by God's holy word. Vision is grounded in truth. If you look at verse 12, I set out during the night with a few men, and I had not told anyone yet, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart. You see, Nehemiah's idea of building the wall was not Nehemiah's idea. It was God's. Steve's idea of becoming a pastor was not Steve's idea. God's. That's vision. If vision comes from you, if it comes from man's philosophy, if it comes from someone else's opinion, it's not the kind of vision we're talking about. We're talking about vision that comes from God. Aren't we glad we have the revelation of God? See, you can get into it in the morning hour, you can study it at noontime, you can come to church, you can gather in small groups, and God's vision will begin to build up into your heart. Chaplain Asher, to this day, doesn't know that God used him to plant a vision in this young man's heart. But he'll know it, if he's with the Lord now, that he made a difference in my life. Vision always originates with God if it's the kind of vision we want to follow. Number three, vision sees the present clearly. Not just the, the future. Uh, that's, you know, when we talk vision, we're often thinking future. But what about the present situation? Are your eyes wide open to the here and now? Notice what Nehemiah says in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Let me ask you that question. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you see the trouble you're in? If you do know Jesus as your Savior, but you haven't figured out his plans and purposes, you have no vision, do you see the trouble you are in? Just look at the landscape of America. Do you think there's trouble around us? And there's so many Christians today giving voice to the trouble in government and the trouble in, in uh, 
the business world and uh, the trouble in society uh, in terms of morals, uh, the troubles in the schoolhouse. I'm not here to talk about that today. I want to talk about the trouble in the church in America. Because the solution is not found at the footsteps of government. The solution is not found in some politician, local or national. The solution is found in the one who came and died and rose again. And it's up to the church to announce to the world that Jesus is alive. So the problem in our nation, and there are many, falls at the steps of the churches in our nation. And the American church, in my view, is in a heap of trouble. I'm a lover of church history, and as I follow the trends of history, I see where the Apostle Paul started strong and vibrant churches and if you go to that region today, you're hard-pressed to find believers. And then how the gospel moved from southern Europe through northern Europe. And having lived four years in southern Spain, I know all about institutionalized religion and the lack of spiritual health in life. I was pastoring in Rochester, New York, and a lady was sitting in the back. I had never met her before, and halfway through my sermon, she started sobbing audibly. After church, I took her aside, and I asked her if I could pray for her. And she said, Pastor, I'm visiting from England, where I go to church every Sunday, and now I realize my church is dead. She had never experienced what I experienced here this morning at Bethany, the vibrant singing, the joyful heart, the Christian welcome, the love of truth. She didn't know what that was like until she visited a church that had it, and she longed for it. You see, Europe has become secularized, and God has been squeezed out. And then that historical movement goes across to North America and Canada where I pastored my first church on the prairies of Saskatchewan. The prairies are much more conservative in their beliefs and practices than many parts of Canada. And yet the church in Canada is going the way of the church in Europe. And that trend is moving now through the heart of the United States of America. And the light of the gospel of Christ is growing dim in our land. It's vibrant in places like Costa Rica and Brazil, in Indonesia, in West Africa, and places like Cameroon, where hundreds of thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ while the light in North America grows dim. I don't know about you. I believe the promise that Jesus made that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. I believe that. But not necessarily is it going to happen in the Wausau area. Not necessarily in Wisconsin, Upper Michigan. Not necessarily in the United States. And yet I want it to. And I bet you want it to as well. It's going to require vision. 
It's going to require a clear understanding of the trouble we're in. It's kind of like the alcoholic who goes to the AA meeting and eventually he has to stand up and say, friends, I am so-and-so, and guess what? I am an alcoholic. Because if you ever want to deal with your problem, you first have to acknowledge you got one. And I believe the American church is unaware of the trouble we're in. Nehemiah looked at the walls of Jerusalem and it broke his heart. He recognized that they were in a heap of trouble. And you got to do something with that. Number four. Vision inspires us to act. That picture of a preferred future, that reality of today, inspires people to action. Notice what he says here. They replied to Nehemiah, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Why did they start building? It's because Nehemiah came with a clear picture, a reality check on today, and he challenged the people to rise and to be the people of God and to build the walls of Jerusalem. I have found throughout my ministry that people will rise. God's people will rise when there's clear biblical vision. I believe there's a hunger in the American church for clarity wrapped around the truth of God's Word. I believe people don't want to jump on a train if they don't know where the train is going. They don't want to jump on a train that's led by a conductor that's going in circles. And I praise God for leaders like Pastor Ken who is providing the solid, biblical, visionary leadership that is so desperately needed in the American church. You have a wonderful leader, and we're so thankful for the partnership that you have with Converge. We have a leadership crisis in the American church. People called by God who are willing to step up to the plate, speak truth, wrap it in love, and not worry. Not worry about whether somebody is going to like you or not. Truth in love is the desperate need of the American church. Number five, vision usually brings resistance. Well, you don't usually want to end a sermon on that kind of a note, but that's another reality check. When you have vision, when you're moving forward in the plans of God, I can guarantee there's going to be resistance. Why can I guarantee that? Because I know myself. And within me resides a sinful human nature. Now, thank God the Holy Spirit resides in me, Thank God I have the ability to surrender to the Spirit and be under His control rather than the flesh. But I know me. And I know there are times when I allow that flesh to take over. 
And there's one thing about the flesh. It doesn't like change. Vision drives change. And human nature resists it. Have you ever been there? A new program at church? <laughs> Maybe uh, a new leader of a particular ministry? Uh, new people in your small group? Whatever. Do you sense the feelings that rise up within you? I was in a church recently, and thank goodness they were joking. But they came up to me and said, well, I'm just checking your seat here to make sure that it's not one of the assigned seats to the regulars in church. Have you ever been to a church where you sat in somebody else's seat? You see, we are creatures of habit. We are creatures of comfort. We are creatures of the same. And vision drives different. Vision drives change, and it moves us forward into unchartered territory. So, Nehemiah was no exception if you look at the end of the text that I read. It talks about three men, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And guess what? They resisted what Nehemiah was doing. They didn't like the idea of rebuilding the walls, and they were not going to give him an inch of territory. They mocked him and ridiculed him, and in the chapters to follow, you can read the rest of the story. But Nehemiah pursued, compelled by a biblical vision. Will you be that kind of leader? There was another leader in the Old Testament that was a visionary, and there were many. His name was Moses. Did Moses have any resistance from the people? <laughs> now, Moses was like me. He felt unqualified to be a leader, but God saw something else and painted a vision within his heart and mind. And Moses followed that vision, and he went down to Egypt, and he confronted Pharaoh, and he led God's people out. But what did God's people do? They kept looking over their shoulders, looking back at captivity, and thinking, wow, it was better being a slave than it is out here in the desert. I mean, we had more green grass back in Goshen than we have here in this dry no man's land. Resistance. Resistance. Uh, the American church is facing all kinds of resistance to the biblical vision God has. But here's the solution. Moses had deep within his heart and clear within his mind this statement. A land flowing with milk and honey. I call that vision. He could see it. He could taste it. He could feel it. He wasn't turning back. This vision was moving him forward. And a million and a half to two and a half million followers followed him, not because they liked it, but because 
He was a man of vision, and it came from God. And when it comes from God, it is good for man. The church today desperately needs vision. Back in Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. The New International Version says, where there is no revelation from God, the people are left without restraint. In other words, they will be like Steve at the age of 18, running away from life, going his own direction, not following a plan. And eventually, if you don't capture that vision, your life is in a pile of ruin. Jesus, before he ascended back into heaven, he had been crucified and rose from the dead. He interacted in his resurrected form with his disciples, and then he turned to them at the very last instance, and he gave them a vision. Matthew 28, Go and make disciples. Acts 1.8, Be my witnesses here and there and to the end of everywhere. Be my witness. Do you have it in your mind? Can you taste it in your mouth? Can you feel it in your belly? It is vision that has driven me from the recruiting office to the pulpit. Vision will take you where God wants you to be and it will take Bethany to the next place he has for you. God bless you as you are people of vision. Father, you are a good and gracious God. We are undeserving of your love and kindness to us. How you reach down into our world, incarnate, And you pick us up out of the miry clay and you set us on the solid rock and you give our life meaning and you take our weaknesses and you transform them and make us useful. You give us assignments that we could not have imagined apart from you. And I pray that everyone seated here this morning will leave this place with a renewed vision of what you want to do in their life. And that we will leave here today with a renewed vision of where you are taking Bethany. And a renewed vision of a community I'm not sure about the greater Wausau area but Wisconsin, Upper Michigan combined, 80.5% of the population is not connected to a local church. Did you hear that? Do you see the trouble we're in? Do you have a picture of those lost people coming to Bethany? One year from now, they'll be seated next to you. Many of them 
will have now Christ as their Savior. They will be in your small groups, people you never knew before. Will you allow that vision to drive you in your service of the Lord Jesus Christ? The world is waiting, and they don't even know what they're waiting for. A Savior has been born for you. He is Christ, the Lord. May God bless you as you capture that vision and share that passion with the lost world. And we ask this in the power of a resurrected Christ. Amen.